We all have faith. Every one of us, even the most staunch atheist and supposed unbeliever, has faith. That's evident even in what's happening right now. You are sitting in those chairs because you have faith that they will hold you up. I haven't seen anyone checking the screws or putting various heavy objects on the chairs to test out whether or not they, they hold anyone's weight. No, you, like me, have faith. We have faith that Rick didn't mess with the chairs. We have faith that the town center wouldn't keep broken, dangerous chairs. We have faith that the manufacturer hasn't produced a shoddy product. These are all assumptions that are not proven. They're well assumed. And so the question before us is not, should you have faith or not? From the foods we eat to the cars we drive, we have faith all day, every day. The question is, is our faith warranted? That is, how do we know if we're putting our trust in the right objects? So the other day, I saw that someone had gotten a tattoo about two or three weeks ago after the, uh, after the Celtics had beaten the Miami Heat to enter into the NBA Finals. They got a tattoo. You know where this is going? saying, Boston Celtics, 2022 NBA champions. That was misplaced faith. He had faith, but he put it in the wrong object, namely the Boston Celtics. Others put their faith in degree programs, hoping it will lead to certain job opportunities. Still yet more put their trust in family. Or, or their jobs to provide them with a sense of meaning and significance. We all have faith. The question is, is our faith warranted? Will the object of our faith come through for us when we need it most? So to help us consider these questions some more, we'll be in Mark chapters 5 and 6. So let me encourage you to turn there now. We'll begin in Mark 5 verse 21 and go through chapter 6 verse 6. So far in Mark's gospel, we've seen Jesus Christ come onto the scene as an incredible teacher and miracle worker. He was declared to be the son of God at his baptism. He's gone around authoritatively healing, proclaiming the kingdom of God, casting out demons, and even declaring the forgiveness of sins. Yet all this has led to opposition, hasn't it? From the religious leaders who viewed Jesus as a threat to their power, to the crowds who seemed only to be interested in physical healing, to Jesus' own family, and even to his disciples who have proven to be hard-hearted and spiritually dull, the response to Jesus has been mixed. And so last week, we saw Jesus' power and might on display as he incredibly rebuked the wind and the waves. And then he healed a demon-possessed man whom no one else could tame. And so we arrive at Mark chapter 5, verse 21. We'll have two sections this morning, and the main idea of our passage is simply this. Jesus gives hope to the hopeless, so we should respond with faith, not fear. Jesus gives hope to the hopeless, so we should respond with faith, not fear. Read with me Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. 
And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the, garment, uh, in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowds pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any farther, any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was, taking her by the hand. He said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was about 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. He went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother and James and Jodas and Judas and Simon? Are not, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Amen. Well, our first point is found in chapter 5, verses 
21 to 43, entitled Hope for the Hopeless. And really, the first thing to notice about our passage is something, I wonder if you picked up on it, it's that this is a Markin sandwich. We've seen this the past couple of weeks, where Mark will begin a story, but then he'll interrupt that story with a second story, and then he'll refer, he'll, he'll resume, rather, that first story. He'll pick it back up. And the reason Mark does this is to, to show how the two passages relate to one another. They are mutually interpreting. So we see that in verses 21 to 24, the story of Jairus begins. And 25 to 34, then the story of the woman interrupts. And then finally in 35 to 43, we go back to Jairus. That's the first thing to note. The second thing to note as we get started, is that really this, this passage belongs with last week's passage. You may have caught some similar words and themes as last week's. Uh, and if you notice that, it's because Mark intends it that way. From chapter 4, verse 21 to 6, 6, the narrative shows a consistent theme. And the reason we didn't do it in one sermon is because I love you guys. thought a two-hour sermon might be a little bit excessive. So Jesus is again teaching by the sea. In verse 21, but the action really starts in verse 22. Look there. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be made well and live. So there's a ton to notice just in those few verses or two. First, consider that this is going to be the first time in Mark's gospel that a religious leader is painted in a positive light. Up until now, they've been a foil for faithfulness. They've been negative in every way, opposing Jesus, questioning him, accusing him, even plotting his murder. But here Jairus comes, showing that all stereotypes and broad brushes can be imperfect. And I wonder if you notice how Mark describes Jairus' action at the end of verse 22. It says, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. The significance of this is that it's very, very similar language to that used of the demoniac earlier in the chapter. Look at verse 6 of chapter 5. It says that the demoniac, when he saw him, he fell down before him. And so here, Jairus shows that same humility, that, hu that same abasement before the Lord. Because Jairus realizes that he has none of the requisite abilities to do that which he so desperately wants. He is entirely lacking of that which is required. And so he turns to the only one who is able. And, and notice what he does at Jesus' feet. He falls down in desperation. And then let me, let me literally translate verse 23. And he begged him, saying, my daughter is at the point of death. Friends, if you were here last week, that should sound familiar. Because that is exactly what the demon the townspeople and the formerly possessed man had done with Jesus. They begged for his help. And so here, 
Jairus is doing the same exact thing, desperate for Jesus' intervention. And we note that, Jesus, that Jairus is asking for two specific things. It is so crucial that you guys notice this. It's, all right, so I'm going to translate verse 23 a little bit more literally because it's, it's really important. Look there. And he begged him, saying, my little daughter's at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be saved and may live. Do you notice the, the two things that he wants Jesus to do? First, he wants Jesus to save her. Now, the ESV, it's, it's a fine translation when it says made well. Uh, this verb has a broad range of meanings. Sometimes it can mean healed, but sometimes it means saved. And actually, usually it means saved. It's the normal word when you're reading Ephesians 2 or kind of the rest of your New Testament. When you see the word saved, it's this word, sozo. And I think Jairus clearly means, I want you to save her, not just heal her, because the second thing that Jairus wants, well, that verb is denoting physical healing, that she may live. When Jairus uses that sozo, that first verb, he is after something much greater than mere physical healing. Jairus recognizes that Jesus is something much greater. He's more than just a teacher, more than just a doctor on demand, more than just a miracle worker. He is the Savior. And so he knows that his daughter needs more than physical life. She needs to be saved. What kind of salvation is in view here? I think it's a generic sense that Jairus is using it but includes salvation from sin, from God's just judgment against sin, from Satan's kingdom, from despair, from hopelessness. Because as the Bible says, the wages of sin is death. That is that what you and I get for sinning is death. Death wasn't a natural part of the world when God created Adam and Eve. You remember he told them, on the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, on that day you will surely die. And sadly, that's what's been happening ever since. We're all sinners, and so we all die. It's the totality of that reality that this girl needs to be saved from. And, and I wonder if you notice the love of a father here. Later, some people come, messengers from Jairus' house, and say, your daughter has died. But here, in verse 23, Jairus calls her his little daughter. My little daughter is at the point of death. Oh, friends, can you hear the father's heartbreak and sorrow? His absolute desperation for his little girl. True love will always lead us to bring people to the Savior. It is because we love our children and our family and our friends that we bring them to the Savior we say, save them, Lord. You are our only hope. But that's when the story gets interrupted. Because notice how verse 25 shifts the story to a certain woman. Look there. 
And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. You know, it's really fascinating. In Mark's description of this woman, it's actually fairly similar to the way he had described the demoniac earlier in chapter 5. You remember how Mark had spent like verses 2 to 6 saying he was really bad. He was amongst the tombs, crying out day and night in the tombs. He had demons. No one could tame him. No one could put him in shackles. He's just kind of laying it on how bad this demoniac had it. Well, that's what we get with this woman. That's what this woman is facing. No one has been able to help her. Her case is desperate. And all her problems stem from this discharge of blood that she had had for 12 years. Leviticus 15 would say, said that this made her ceremonial, ceremonially unclean. So not only did she have a physical problem, but she suffered socially as well. She was an outcast from society. And it's because this problem was so massive that she had tried so hard to fix it, but all to no avail. Notice what verse 26 says. She had suffered much under many physicians. That is far from the physicians making her case better. She rather suffered under their care. Indeed, she had spent all that she had. The promise of healing turned out to be a cruel master, sucking her sustenance and provision. And so in some, she was no better, but rather grew worse. Brothers and sisters, this is our fate as well. When we take what only Jesus can cure and we try to fix it apart from him. When we have trials and vexations in this life, there are some things that only he can solve. And when we try to fix them apart from him, they only get worse. When you are discouraged and lonely, where do you turn? To alcohol or sex or money? When you are weary and frustrated, do you spend your time and your money on entertainment, believing that that will fill the void? When you feel helpless, like your life is spinning out of control, do you turn to religious self-righteousness and an attempt to bring order to a chaotic universe? We all have our own temptations to turn to things other than Christ to solve our sorrows. But when we do so, friends, the problem only gets worse, not better. These other supposed saviors, they never actually solve the problem. They actually just make us more enslaved to these supposed solutions right? Are you really delivered from crushing anxiety about work if you have to eat your way out of despair? Are you really saved from singleness if you have to turn against God's word about marriage to do so? Brothers and sisters, such false physicians lead us to suffer much. Under sin's dominion, we don't get any better. We spend all that we have only to grow worse and worse. But notice what verse 27 says. 
she had heard reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. You know, I love that. She heard reports about Jesus, and so she came to Jesus. And notice how bold she is. This social outcast relegated to the margins of society, yet bold in faith she comes. She says, even if I touch his garments, like Jesus is so powerful that even if he has a pair of dirty socks laying around, I want to get close to him. She believes in Christ's incredible power. And I wonder if you notice that final verb at the end of verse 28. It's the same verb that Jairus had used about his daughter. She says, if I touch even his garments, I will be saved. The same word that Jairus uses with the same sense to denote that this woman is interested in more than just physical healing. She recognizes that Jesus is more than just a bodily healer. He can save the totality of who I am. I need salvation. And so in verse 29, immediately she is healed. Her body, she knew it. And so too did Jesus know that something happened. Verses 30 and 31 are pretty comical, right? It's almost like a Three Stooges skit. It's like, somebody touched me. Well, of course somebody touched me. Like, you're in this massive crowd. No, 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 but like somebody actually, well, yeah, we know that, Jesus. You're like Elvis and George Whitfield combined. People are crushing in all around. What do you mean, who touched me? Well, there was something unique about her that was different than all the other people crowding around Jesus. So he looks around in verse 32, and then we read in verse 33. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told, them, told him the whole truth. What a heart-wrenching scene. The woman has showed such incredible faith in Jesus' power to heal, and yet she's She's lacking. She's doubting his mercy, his love, his compassion. She is terrified to come to him. She's not terrified of her circumstances, but of him. She thinks Jesus is like Darth Vader, searching out the rebels hiding in the village. Well, there's really no use hiding. I guess I should just give myself up. Oh, but friends, oh, what a surprise is in store for her. Perhaps when she had heard the, repute, the reports about Jesus, this woman had heard the report about Jesus' great might, that he can heal diseases, cast out demons. He can even command the wind and the waves. He can even subdue five to 6,000 demons. And so like Jairus before her, like the demon-possessed man before him, she falls down at Jesus' feet. But she's terrified. Then we get verse 34. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. 
Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Friends, there is so much there. First, notice how Jesus addresses her. Daughter. Daughter. Jesus is the most gentle, tender, compassionate, patient Savior that you could ever ask for. Like a father caring for his daughter. So Jesus addresses this woman in all purity and love and affection. You know, if you're like me, you're kind of used to being treated like a, a number in the system. We pay our taxes, and we literally have numbers assigned to us. Perhaps in your workplace, you might have an employee number. Uh, we have rewards programs, and we can give our, our customer ID. I was doing that at Lowe's last night. But for God, salvation is always personal. For Jesus, his love is always tender. He doesn't kind of like throw out a big batch of love and mercy and see who it falls on. No, he addresses us as daughter and son. Daughter, your faith, your belief, your faith is what I'd like to commend. That's what makes this woman different from everyone else in the crowd around Jesus. She believed in who he is. She trusted in him. And then check this out. Daughter, your faith has saved you. I know I'm being repetitive, but it's the same word. Mark's being repetitive so that you and I, we can kind of get it in our thick skulls. This Woman, this is the same prayer that she had. This is the same desire. Maybe I can be saved. And Jesus says, your faith has saved you. And the crazy thing is that this is actually new news to her. Because you remember that when she had touched Jesus' garment, she was immediately healed. And verse 29 says that she knew in her body that she was healed. So she came to Jesus for salvation. In verse 29, she knows she gets physical healing. But then here in verse 34, she receives the good news that not only has her faith healed her, her faith has saved her. Until Jesus said these words, the woman didn't know. Again, when Jesus is referring to being made well, we know that he's not referring to, to physical healing because his last words to her are, be healed of your disease. You know, so for the Christian, healing from physical disease is a good thing. The main thing, though, is being saved. Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Like the disciples in the boat, like that demoniac among the tombs, this woman's life had been a living hell. It had been utterly devoid of peace. Yet Jesus now blesses her and tells her to enjoy God's peace. 
We read earlier in our scripture reading that the wicked have no peace. You see, sin provides no reprieve. Satan provides no rest. There are only relentless assaults and temptations. There's no contentment, no shalom, only the lust for more. Yet in Christ, do you remember what our assurance of pardon said? Since we have been justified by faith, like the woman, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, peace with God, peace with others, and even peace within ourselves is only achieved by the work of Christ on our behalf. It is given by grace, and it is received by faith. Uh, that's what especially we want non-Christians to know. So if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, that's the most important thing that we can communicate to you. Though we have sought happiness and self-rule in anything and everything but God, though we are rebels living at war with God, yet God offers peace. God offers peace to all who would trust in Christ in his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection. Now Christ offers peace not only to this woman, but also to you and me, to any who will repent of their sins and trust in him. So this woman has been saved and healed, but you'll recall that Jesus had been on a previous mission to help Jairus, right? I wonder what these seconds turning into minutes would have been like for Jairus. As a concerned father, his time is slipping away. His daughter his little daughter at her deathbed. So verse 35 says, while Jesus was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? In short, Jairus, your desperate situation has now become a hopeless situation. It's all over. She's well and truly gone. That's what the messengers think. I wonder if you notice, they call Jesus teacher. It's the same as the disciples had addressed Jesus in the boat. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Jesus is more than a teacher. Because verse 36 says, but overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. The word for believe is the same word in Greek as the word faith. So in English, faith is the noun. We have now, we, we have faith, we grow in faith. Believe is the verb, I believe. It's the same verb in, in Greek. Don't fear, only believe. What a crazy thing to say. I mean, Jesus, have you seen the circumstances? This is the worst thing that could possibly happen. It's hopeless. Oh, friends, brothers and sisters, God has a history of doing the impossible, doesn't he? He saves and he works when everyone else thinks it's impossible, but not for God. He chooses an old barren couple 
to start a nation and to bring forth innumerable descendants. He brings his people up to the Red Sea and then causes them to walk right through it. He dwindles Gideon's army and then still defeats the foe. He brings a shepherd boy from among the flocks to behead the warrior giant of Goliath. Friends, in all these ways, God is trying to get our attention. Why does he do it this way? Why does he bring his people up to imminent destruction and then save? Well, friends, God is trying to make a point. Namely, I'm the impressive one here. Not you, Scott. Not you, Jairus or Jairus' daughter. Not you, O Israelites. When the situation looks hopeless, don't despair. Because if you have me, you have everything you need. O Abraham, though you are childless, childless, do not be afraid. Only believe. O Israelites, though the Egyptian swords glint in the fire and the waves roar behind you, do not fear. Only believe. O Gideon, O David, though your foes be mighty, do not be afraid, for I am with you. Only believe. Brothers and sisters, faith and fear are mutually exclusive responses in the Christian life. Now, I promise you, we can alternate between them in rapid succession. I can have faith in God and in his promises now, but then five minutes later, we're doubting and afraid, and then three minutes after that, be back to trusting God. But they can't be happening simultaneously in the same way about the same thing because they are polar opposites. Faith says, look to Christ. He is steadfast. He is good. There is nothing to fear. Yet fear says, look to your circumstances. They are devastating. God is not good. There is no reason to have faith. Trinity Church of Bedford, this is the battle we all face. When faced with sickness and job loss and family strain and backsliding into sin and parenting struggles and health breakdowns and crushing disappointment, this is our choice. Faith or fear. And we should know that it's not just faith in general that Jesus commends. To go back to our opening example, faith in these chairs seems to be a good and warranted faith. But if I were to say, look, faith is good, we just need to believe. Just believe. I'm going to jump out this window and grow a pair of wings. Just believe. It's all going to work out. Well, that's not wise at all. Jesus is not commanding or commending a kind of carte blanche faith in general. He's not saying, yeah, we need to have the power of positive thinking. Rather, he's saying, believe in me. Have faith and trust in me because who I am and what I've come to do. And if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you know that this is easier said than done, right? Just because we say we have faith doesn't make it so 
Does it mean we live in such a way? Back in 1859, the acrobat Charles Blondin wowed audiences by walking across a tightrope over Niagara Falls dozens of times. And eventually he did it blindfolded, backwards, on stilts. He was incredible. And so, of course, right, pre-television, people, you, you would flock to see him, right? You can't get on Instagram. You got you to go there. And on one occasion, he turned to the crowd and he said, do you believe that I can push someone across in this wheelbarrow? To which they all responded, yes, yes. To which he replied, who will get in then? They said they believed, but their actions belied merely a head knowledge, not a, I'm going to put my life in your hands. That's the kind of belief and faith that Jesus is calling Jairus to, and that he calls you and I to put as well. And so Jesus continues to the ruler's house, but he only allows his inner circle to join him. He sends the mourners out. Verse 40 says, he went in where the child was, taking her by the hand. He said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up. Friends, this is Jesus' most impressive miracle yet. We sang this morning, who else has the power to raise the dead? Only God does. You know, it's one thing to cast out demons or heal the sick. Rebuking the wind and the waves is on another level. Going toe-to-toe with five to 6,000 demons is probably still another level. But raising the dead, who can do this? Who has the power over life and death? Well, 1 Samuel 2 says, the Lord kills and brings to life. The Lord brings down to Sheol and raises up. Thus, as the Lord, as God, Jesus can raise this girl to new life because he is the resurrection and the life. That is, all physical and spiritual existence continues because he wills it, because he sustains it. And so I wonder if you noticed how in verse 42, it says that she was 12 years old of age. Isn't that interesting? The woman above, she had suffered for 12 years. How many prayers had that woman prayed? How often had she thought that God had abandoned her? She was afflicted for 12 long years, and yet here these parents have their 12-year-old daughter revived on the very same day. God's providence is often strange in this way. Why some people have immediate relief and help, yet others go a lifetime in prayer to God for reprieve, only God knows. And so, brothers and sisters, I wonder if by now you've noticed all the connections between these last four stories. 
healing of the storm, casting out of the demoniac, healing of the woman, Jairus' daughter. From the disciples amidst the storm, to the man afflicted with demons, to Jairus' begging for help, to the woman's chronic disease, all of these stories are the stories of helpless people. I mean, their situation is totally hopeless. A demon-like storm arises against the disciples. No one is able to subdue the demoniac. Jairus recognizes that no one can heal his daughter. And for the woman, all the other supposed helpers have actually hurt her. For all of these individuals, they were too far gone for everyone else but for Jesus. For him, there's no such thing as too far gone. No matter how much you've sinned, no matter how much you've been sinned against, no matter how bad the situation, no matter how much you're suffering, no matter if the suffering is the result of your own sinning, there is always cause for faith in the Savior. For if in the first two stories of Jesus overcoming the wind and the waves and the legion of demons, if they showcase his power and might over all things, there's nothing that can be put against him that can subdue him. He subdues everything else. Well, these second two stories display his great tenderness and compassion. This passage is the healing of two daughters as Christ displays a father-like concern and care. And so, brothers and sisters, we never have to fear. If Jesus only had all power and might, but he wasn't tender, well, then you might be afraid, right? Kind of like my drill instructors. They had lots of power and authority. They weren't very gentle, though. You don't want to go to them with your problems. If Jesus is all tenderness and compassion, but he can't do anything about it. You know, I love my kids a lot. When I have a problem, it's great to snuggle up with them. They usually can't solve my problems unless they're the problem. But Jesus can solve all our problems, and he will on judgment day. He will when our faith is turned to sight. In the language of Isaiah 57, Jesus is both the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. He dwells in a high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. And yet, that's not the last thing Mark wants to say about faith in Jesus and how we should respond to him. So in our last few seconds, let's look now at chapter 6, verses 1 to 6, entitled, Hopeless for the Unbelieving. Here we see Jesus return to his hometown of Nazareth. And then in verse 2 begins the litany of questions. Do you notice that? I don't know how many there are. Five or six? It says they were scandalized. They were opposed to Jesus. They took offense at him. And so in short, I wonder if you noticed in their questions... You know, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? Isn't this the carpenter? Do you, remember the, do you know the question they're asking? What's the front of your bulletin say, the title of this sermon series is? They're asking, 
who is Jesus? Who is this guy coming in with this teaching? And they don't have a favorable view of him. And notice how verse 2 says that many who heard him were astonished, indicating, I think, that they were especially offended by his teaching. That's what they took issue with. And so the result is verses 5 and 6. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. My friends, what a tragedy it would be if that is the Lord Jesus' reaction to your life on judgment day. That you and I would have seen his work in creation. That we would have been given a conscience with the law of God written on our hearts. That we would have sat through sermon after sermon, beholding Jesus' glory in the scriptures, and to fundamentally respond with unbelief. Trinity Church of Bedford, may we grow in faith. As believers, for those of us who have trusted in Christ, we still are prone to fear. And so may God give us grace that by his Holy Spirit, he might work up ever more faith in him for the glory of Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are strong and kind, mighty and merciful. We praise you that there is nothing that you can't do and that when you do it, you are right to intervene. You show compassion and tenderness to the hurting. Father, we pray for for those here who are facing various trials and tribulations that you'd grow us in our faith, that you'd grow us in our trust in you, and that as we see your provision, we would not spurn that, but that our faith would grow all the more. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.